0: The Grid Podcast is gonna be giving away a platinum pass worth $30,000, includes a 25K ticket to the Poker Stars Players Championship and an all-expenses-paid trip to the Bahamas to live it up and raise it up. Good luck, everyone. And if you wanna find out all the details in the contest, they're there in the show notes. They're also gonna be in my pinned tweet at Jenjihadi on Twitter.
1: Dealer, I'm feeling it hit me.
0: Welcome to The Grid, sponsored by PokerStars. I am your host, Jennifer Shahadi, and we'll be taking a 13 by 13 episode journey through every possible no limit hold'em hand. 169 hands in total, from aces to 7-deuce offsuit. Each episode, I'll interview another top poker player or personality about their hand. Once a combo is taken, it's gone. So this podcast will become progressively more difficult as hands like Ace King are removed from the grid. Whether you spend hours poring over grids as you study poker, love to listen to hand history pods while grinding cash, or are just interested in absurd scavenger hunts, we're going to have some fun. You
1: got the cards, dealer, I'm feeling it hit me, yeah, I got swagger, they see me, see me strutting. Jedi.
0: I told you a few months ago that there are some very exciting reasons why I've been especially busy lately. Well, one such reason is that I'm coming out with Chess Queens. It's a totally updated and revised version of my previous book on women in chess. Right now, orders are my love language. With that in mind, let's get into this episode's special guest. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Grid. Today I am super excited to welcome Victoria Livshits. You might have seen Victoria lately, competing in top events, including high roller tournament victories from Victoria in the Venetian and the Aria. But her success in the World Games goes way back to her days winning World Youth Chess Championships in Lithuania. Since arriving to the United States over 30 years ago, She studied math and computer science and became a serial entrepreneur. Her biggest success in entrepreneurship was an early cloud computing leader called the grid dynamics. As a poker player she mostly played cash until the fall of 2021 when her quest for tournament mastery began in earnest. Since then she has won over 500k in tournaments including a big chunk in the tournament series that we're gonna delve into today. A Poker Go Masters 10K event, which she placed in fourth in for a $74,000 cash. She also cashed in a 25K a couple days later for over 50,000. So in these events, she played amongst many of the best players in the world, including this hand where she was facing one, Eric Seidel, and she held the queen nine offsuit and thank you so much for joining me victoria
1: jennifer thank you for having me it's a pleasure it's my uh first poker podcast uh, like ever exciting
0: this is a rite of passage i'm sure after you're on this one that your 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 phone's gonna be <laughs> blowing up so in this particular hand it was from the poker girl masters and it seems like you do grind a lot of these high roller series and tournaments in las vegas over the last couple of years
1: yeah, it's been one crazy year. I've got really involved in poker in, in kind of a significant way uh, last October. And uh, it's kind of amazing what, what a year it had become. And I had the audacity to make my very first World Series of Poker uh, MTT. I have started with 25K. <laughs> That's probably a very, very crazy way to, to get into tournament poker. But I was uh, kind of immediately hooked by the opportunity to play against the heroes, so to speak and uh, it had been what was driving me you know throughout this year just uh desire to get better and get in the felt and compete with the best and learn as, uh, as fast as i can
0: you mentioned to me that part of it is about playing against the best And this hand clearly playing against a very fantastic legendary player eric seidel and you um had been playing with him for a while at this point like what point at the tournament and at the table was this
1: yeah so to set the stage i've had a chance to play with eric many times throughout the year he is a very frequent participant of all the poker go tournaments and and so have i been this last year so we've definitely had our fair share of duels up to this point this was a fourth event in a recent poker go masters so it's 10k. It's about middle of the first day. Battled quite a bit at this point in time as well. Really didn't tangle up in any of the really big hands. I thought I had a pretty good idea of how Eric plays, just based on the, uh, these previous encounters. I go a lot my uh, in my poker play by reads, and so that that's just a really big part of my game. Yeah, so the game starts, the hand starts, with both of us being pretty deep. The starting stacks were... 100k, and we both have about 400 at this point in time. The blinds are 300-600, uh, if I'm not uh, mistaken. And Eric opens on the button to so two and, a half, uh, two and a half bigs. And uh, we call with Queen-9 from big blinds defend. Specifically, we have uh, Queen of Spades and Nine of Hearts. It will become important as the, as the hand progresses. Flop comes, uh, Jack of Diamonds eight of hearts, and five of hearts. So we connected somewhat to that flop. We have inside straight to a ten. We've got a couple of hearts, and we have nine of hearts. Uh, And generally, that flop is pretty good for our range. So mandatory check. Eric checks behind, and we get six of hearts. So now three hearts to the board. couple more equity. Um, Seven of hearts would be a straight, uh, straight flush. Any other 7 would be a straight, and then we're also drawing to a 10 being a straight. So lots of equity, but uh, no reason to do anything about it. Uh, you know, no leads or anything like that, so I check, and Eric checks behind. And now on the river, we get Queen of Clubs. So this is a really, really interesting card, because now we have a top pair, but we have fairly mediocre kicker. Uh, if it comes down to the Battle of Kickers, I don't think he often has worse than Queen 9. It's also a card that, while it's connected to my hand, it connects really well to Eric's range. So I go for a block bet of 44k and I bet 10 into 44. And we induce Eric to make a huge overbet uh, raise. And so he puts in 70k into a... Uh, part of 50, 55. Now we're going to decide what are we dealing with here? Is this a a bluff? And we need to catch it? Or did Eric somehow have a monster that we've we've, we've stepped into? And so when I decide if I'm going to bluff catch in a spot like that, part of it is is the story itself. Does the story check out that he has a monster here? And also the storyteller. (laughs) What do you know about Eric? And how likely is this to be a slow-played monster versus, uh, versus a bluff? So what kind of monsters could he have? His range could have some sets, maybe all of sets. But I seriously doubt that on this very, very connected board, sets would be checking behind two streets. That just seems very unlikely. Same logic applies to, you, like, Big, Big Jack, if he had, uh, uh, you know, some sort of, a, I don't know, Jack Queen, which now made two pair. I just don't see checking very often. As far as queens are concerned, he certainly has better queens than me. He has ace-queen, he has king-queen. Question is, does one pair hand on this board really want to go nuts on the river? I don't see this happening very often. I also am uncapped, and I could be trapping, and I could have all sorts of hands way better than, uh, you know, one queen. But I decided to take that line. So I sort of ruled out a lot of really big hands. And also, you know, the one pair, queen, queen hands, that would be better than mine. It could still be a flush. So particularly ace high, nut flush, totally take that line. Given how good the flop is for big blind, just give more rope, right? Connect to 2p, connect to, to connect to straight, or something like that. So that's, that's quite possible. But then the number of value hands here have to be balanced with the number of blows. And I thought there is a large amount of bluffs that Eric would certainly find here. Uh, Anything with uh, Ace of Hearts is a prime candidate, if you will. Uh, And there's probably a bunch of other uh, creative plays that that Eric can find if he does not believe that he has a showdown value here. So on the balance of things, uh, I thought the bluff was very likely and probably more likely than than a value raise. And do I believe Eric being capable of doing so? Absolutely uh so it's a call
0: I think that such a important question about whether or not he has those one pair hands particularly ace queen king queen because you be bet one and a half big lines right so you bet ten k and forty four k yep if he has ace queen he can't just call ten k don't you think he's gonna raise you think he's gonna raise a smaller amount maybe or do you think he just calls
1: uh first of all I think he he can call and the yeah, rightly or wrongly, my perception of Eric is to be actually quite a careful player. Mm-hmm. I haven't seen him being extremely ambitious on the, on the marginal situations. So there was a little bit of that in the decision making. Yeah. But I do think it's really dicey for ace-queen to try to take that big of a race. Questionable reward too, because it only makes sense to do for value if you can really get paid. So what kind of hands is he getting paid for? when he raises, you know, overbed you know, for value. This cute overbed is very polar. Yeah. I treated it as a polar.
0: And what was his reaction when you called? Because I saw a photograph of him calling afterwards and he just looked like so contemplative, like almost, you know, both of us have a chess background and it looked like he was just like, the hand was ending, but it looked like for him, the hand was starting.
1: Well, you know, Eric complimented me on his hand. He later complimented me on the, on, on the play because it was uh, one of many hands that we got involved. We ended up being on the same final table, you know, the next day. Also, for what it's worth, again, these are there's a little things, but poker is a collection of little things that lead to big decisions. I thought Eric was, on that particular day, more out of line than he usually is. So I thought he actually was more likely to put up a big bluff uh in this particular hand than than maybe usually i can't qualify it in any any anymore but that was the the feeling that definitely contributed to the analysis
0: also i did want to ask as well about whether there was any looming icm factors that might make you feel like he was even more likely to bluff because you guys both had like 4x starting stack
1: these are both very healthy stacks it was uh kind of a middle of day one. No, no ICM yet. You know, nobody likes losing, you know, 100K or right, so. Right, like
0: stacks that are enough to kind of like, if you pick up a few pots here and there, that, you know, you might just coast into the money. So a little bit more at risk.
1: That definitely helped me set up for, for a good run after that. And definitely left left Eric plenty to, to do well with it as well. He had Ace of Cards and King of, uh, of Diamonds.
0: And what do you think of the play now, looking back on it? Do you like his play with this particular holding
1: so he sort of blocked some of the hands that would be bluffs but he's also unblocking like a one smaller one pair hands that would block that and then give up on a you know big 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 race so i, I genuinely think that ace of ace of hearts is a really good part to have to to put that bluff uh probably would have liked to have another kicker to do that with
0: do you think that if he didn't make this raise do you think he would have Called or folded? I think it's a fold. If he doesn't go for the raise, you think it's a fold? You said that he really liked your play.
1: Well, it, I mean, he's always a perfect gentleman at the table, so he said something complimentary about this hand.
0: You mentioned that you play very much based on reads. At what point in this hand did you kind of like concoct a potential plan to trick him in this way? Well, obviously you didn't have a pair until the river. But did it kind of occur to you right away to like make this small bet to induce him?
1: Yeah, I mean, that was that was definitely part of the part of the play. I thought that if he if he had missed it, which was a good uh, good chance that he did, then then I might get a big bluff out of him. And and then I'd have to decide if if I'm really going to pull it off, depending on how big it is.
0: It's interesting that you have this background in chess and that you mentioned that you really rely on your reads because in chess, there isn't really a lot of reads. At what point did you realize that this was like a strength of your poker game? Because you've only been playing like serious live, live tournaments for basically a year. Yeah. Did you kind of just like dive
1: into that right away? It's all part of the story. So first of all, yeah, I kind of grew up playing chess. But I think chess and poker are so different. Mm-hmm. I think they're much, much, much more different than they're same. I think they require different skills. And poker is much more of my game than than chess have ever been. And I do like that poker is is analytical and theoretical and sort of precision based on theory is required. But I also love that it's playing with human beings. And then there is a big part of the game is the uh, sort of understanding of everything that goes into the game. It is the game, humans are making decisions. So understanding where the humans are coming from and how they play the game. It's a battle of technical skills, but it's also a battle of uh, magics, if you will. <laughs> Intuition? Yeah. Intuition reads uh, a uh, more artistic and creative side of poker.
0: When did you realize that you had a talent for that side of poker?
1: I think this is what helps me maybe progress for poker a little faster than, than many others. I find it super transferable from other things that I've done in life, particularly entrepreneurship and leadership. I've gotten a lot of experience for years and years and years to infer a lot about people that I work with, with very little information. Anything from microexpressions, from small deviations from baseline, from the way they phrase things, from the way they say things, from the way they don't say things, minute behavioral changes, they they convey a ton of information. It's very important when you manage teams. It's very important when you're negotiating in the business situations. You know, if you're negotiating any sort of deal with anybody, you need to know who wants the deal, who doesn't want a deal, who wants to be in the room, who doesn't want to be in the room, who likes the way conversation is progressing, who doesn't. It's very, very similar to how people negotiate through poker hands, whether or not they like to be in the pot or they don't. Bad because they have to, but their hearts is not in it or... Or they're excited and motivated and, and, and creative and, and so all these things have huge bearing on how i think poker poker games needs to be played and interpreted a lot of it is life but not just live. Uh, online you, you get a lot of the same
0: can you give an example of what you mean by you can tell when somebody doesn't want to be in a pot because I think that's such a great example, especially with tournaments and like ICM factors or super elite players at the table. I totally know what you mean. Like sometimes you feel like people are playing a pot because they know they have to, but they're not excited to be there and they're afraid. What are some kind of like tells that I pick up on about that? Yeah,
1: I, I I don't know. There's just some plays that are just high convictions and some are just low conviction. And uh I think it comes across in different ways and I can't even dissect it on its uh, elementary parts very often. But the total picture often is very, very telling. Life, if you play with somebody for a while, you could observe a lot of behaviors that I would uh, I would consider baseline. And so if you pay attention on where the deviations are between the the baseline and, and particular decision making and particular junction or particular hand, often these things are Conveying quite a lot of information.
0: Your earliest big success in tech and entrepreneurship was with the grid dynamics. <laughs> Do you have a story from any kind of like negotiation related to the grid dynamics that
1: kind of illustrates your skill? Oh my God, too many, too many. Yeah. Grid Dynamics was, uh, uh, for people who don't know, still is. It's a a tech company I started in 2006, and my career in tech was around emerging technologies pretty much through all of it. So I I had a chance to work on industry's first public cloud on the engineering side of things. And so I was kind of convinced that this this is the next big thing. It's called Grid Dynamics rather than Cloud Dynamics. It's called where Cloud got coined like 30 days after I incorporated. But in any case, there were many opportunities to make uh, you know, a variety of deals and interact with a lot of different players, good players, bad players. I would think maybe the, the most direct correlation and some skills that uh, I think transfer, it's running company in a very distributed mode. My companies have always been, you know, personnel was scattered around the world, in US, Europe, you know, everywhere. And uh, I relied a lot, not unlike playing poker online, on... Uh, remote tools running through early days on Skype and then on tools like Slack, Zoom and whatnot. So the channels of communication are very, you know, tight and you need to infer a lot of background. You need to know who's motivated, who isn't. You know, when the employees communicate to you, who's worried, who is not. Uh, And a lot of these things are, believe it or not, coming loud and clear from very minimalistic, you know, chat-based interfaces that you, you often have with your teams. So a lot of this, I think, you know, sort of comes from inferring what people say or what they don't say or what they used to talk about, but now they don't, you know, why is that something happened?
0: I totally know what you mean, though. It's just like with email, people can't really fake anyone else's voice. So everybody has like such a distinct style of writing.
1: Just imagine if somebody just regularly, you know, twice a week gives you, give you updates on what they're doing for two months. Mm-hmm. And then they go, you know, two cycles without an update. You have to notice uh, that something happens, but it's such a clear departure from a baseline. Something is clearly going on and you need to, you need to tap into and figure out. So sometimes the absence of information is, uh, is, is, is a tell.
0: And so in poker, a corollary would be like if somebody generally double-checked their cards after the flop, but this time didn't
1: maybe yeah or the way the chips are put in the pot the way the decision happens uh, and how long does it take and you know to make a decision sometimes it's very telling if it's live if it's online there is some timing tells there are some some other things i don't know it's not always dissectable to me on the on the elemental particles
0: it is the timing tells is certainly the really difficult um, thing to stabilize for players
1: Really, of all levels. And I notice it even with the very, very good players, like the best. There are still sometimes timing tells. Like, for example, the hand where they linger just a little longer to make a decision. Uh, let's just say pre-flop. You could often deduce that it was a split decision between, let's say, a flat and a raise, right? It's like, like call or three bad. So you could, you could come up with potential class of hands that fall into that category and then, and then test that hypothesis post-flop.
0: Especially a lot of these tournaments now have time bank chips and time banks. So it adds like an extra element that perhaps people have a little bit of less practice with. So as one of the, uh, the few women who's really on the high roller circuit, although actually in this tournament, my, my friend Yuan Lu is also yeah. in, the, in the top four.
1: I was so glad to see her. We're definitely very women deficient in the, in the high roller scene. I know Chrissy used to be playing more. Christina Heal is playing uh, from time to time, which is very nice. There is a couple of women that I see at the poker goers. There's a couple of women that I know playing in Tridents. Kathy Lane you know, is kind of a you know, known high, high stakes player. But it's still so far few in between.
0: I wanted to ask you about that because you obviously have experience both in poker where there is fewer women playing in the high rollers, um, in many cases, because of lack of funds, lack of investment. But then also, this certainly happens in tech and entrepreneurship as well, that there are fewer women CEOs or fewer women founders. And what is the relationship? Do you feel like it's very similar in both fields?
1: Well, so yeah, my, all of my careers have been in a male-dominated industries. You know, I started my professional career in the automotive industry in Detroit. That was definitely, you know, very male dominant environment. Wall Street, uh, where I uh, spent formidable amount of time, was the very male dominant environment, particularly if you go back, still is. Tech, VC world, executive suites. But over the last, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 years that I've been active, this has changed a lot in, uh, in a lot of places. Silicon Valley is much more women-friendly than it used to be. Uh, executive suites, boards, VCs, entrepreneurs, uh, those numbers are showing that while women are still a minority, they have a far smaller minority, or, or the dis- disparity is a lot less than what it used to be 20 or 30 years ago. I think poker is pretty much as bad as it gets. I think women participation is, I mean, we, we're celebrating crossing between like 5% and 55 when it comes to playing in a you know, world series of poker. And just in general, across the board, I think it's not a welcoming environment. I don't think the level is, uh, the playing field is leveled at all. It's a pretty systemic issue. I do think change is possible. Now that I'm part of the poker community and poker industry, I'm interested to see it grow. You know, we have half a population not participating at all. The easiest way to grow the game is to get more women to play. I think it's super important that best women play in high roller events. Uh, the reason being is we need role models in poker for all the talented girls of the future to want to say, hey, I want to crush. And, that, and that's done when you see super successful women going on a tier and, and, and winning you know, big prestigious events against the best. Not too many women you know, even dare to step into the 10k plus tournaments is uh, an indication of that.
0: I'm on the board along with Shuan Liu with uh, Poker Power, and we do a lot mm-hmm. of work with them to try to get more women into the game. In fact, the goal of the organization is to get a million women in poker. Yeah, good, nice. Poker Stars is going to be doing a promo at EPT Prague to give a woman who just learned poker a $30,000 package to the PSPC. So just throwing them in the deep end is very exciting. And I'm helping to coach some of those women, by the way, with, uh, with Poker Power as well. And I know that you also have a female study group that you lead.
1: Yeah, it sort of happened very serendipitously after the World Series of Poker. Somebody approached me and said, hey, there's a number of us women that want to put together a poker study group. Would you like to get involved? Uh, and I said, that sounds like fun, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to help. And so we've, uh, we've started with, I think, five or six people, and it's grown now to, I don't know, maybe maybe 12 or 15, and it's a really fun community. We have a Discord server where we just basically chat, review hands, discuss theory. We have lessons once a week on on Wednesday. That's all Zoom. So everything is completely virtual, and it seems like everybody is having fun. People have had some successes. We've got two ladies recently absolutely crushed the 250 comers, they took first and third, and that was, just, that was just awesome to see. They're having some success in cash games. They seem to love the, uh, the process. And I think there's a lot to be said about both having role models and having peers to study the game with. And so I love what you are doing. I'm excited about uh, our group and, and, it, and its growth. And to me, it's sort of a petri dish to try to study this phenomena as well. One of the things that I was shocked to discover when you look at the demographics of people in this group, you've got a lot of middle-aged women. You have some, some, some older ones, but the, the block is one of the themes, single mom, uh, raising a family, raising children, balancing you know, anything from soccer mom responsibilities to job and still trying to find, find place for, for poker in their lives. Some of them are empty nesters, and now that kids are out of the house, they're finding time for their, for their
0: passions. I believe that one of the things that does hold women back in poker is not only, like, lack of funds, lack of wealth, less access to free time and money. It's also the fact that it's true that men... Um, form these poker clicks where they share information and yeah. tournament schedules, even something as just basic as like groceries and hotels and like food outings. And a lot of times women are are excluded
1: from that. I think it's very hard. Like, like take a classic case where you have like, oh, whatever, young, young boy, right? Young, you know, a lot of people get into this being teens or, you know, early twenties are obsessed with poker. They say, okay, screw college. I'm going to just become a professional poker player, I'm going to move to Vegas, and I'm going to grind. There's still significant stigma around this, right? Families often are not entirely on board with, with, with this. But I also meet, you know, the young, uh, young poker crushers, and, and I compete with them, and I chat with them. I'm always, always interested in the entire poker ecosystem. A lot of them do room, room in with each other, and playing poker, studying poker, talking about poker, and being in a, in a very close circle of poker buddies, is how how this happens. Now imagine same thing for a girl. First of all, the stigma will be so much worse. The social pressure will be so much worse. It's so much harder to say no. I'm not going to pursue traditional career. I'm just going to be a grinder. What are your chances of being accepted in a like boys' gang? And very little. Just even from that perspective, right? I also hear this narrative where women that learn to play poker when they were super young, you know, with their brothers and their, their fathers. But then that life just never allowed for it. Like kids and house responsibilities. Uh, it's just saying, I'm going to go and have my Thursday are going to be my casino poker nights. I think it's just a much easier thing for like a man to establish in a, hu- in, a in a household than, than it is for a woman. Absolutely. My mother
0: played poker every week. Um, Saturdays, she always played poker. And when she got pregnant, one of her poker buddies or no it wasn't her poker buddies it was somebody outside that circle looked at her pregnant belly and said you're not going to play any poker anymore and
1: she was like you just wait <laughs> <laughs> yes i also found interesting enough that there seems to be the pe- people women specifically like middle-aged or, or older women getting into poker that's awful actually kind sides with divorce for better or for worse and it seems like part of it is kind of discovering the new joy of going and trying new things but part of it has also been, you know, held back quite a bit by family responsibilities, you know, until you no longer are. <laughs> that are that
0: are often unequally distributed. Yeah, indeed. Although they love that that part of their lives, and like when it's over, they need something that they feel feel passionate about.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. So, so I actually think that it's wonderful that more and more ladies' events pop up. Why would women want to play with men? And both of us come from chess, right? So we don't question having. Women only chess tournaments and the poker community who is not accustomed to it, I think, is, is quite surprised. Why would anybody want to have a, a gender specific tournament? I think they're important. Uh, I think they are much more sort of a safe space. I like women prizes, I like women letterboards. I've tried to talk to Carrie Katz about creating a uh, women letterboard letter for Poker Go and High Roller uh serious and his argument was well there's not enough women my argument is you create the you create reason for the best women to compete let them compete for the status of being the the, you know the biggest high roller and you're gonna get top 10 women to want to step into a into a high roller events much more so one of the biggest things that men can do is offer coaching to aspiring successful women just generally make it accessible. More accessible to play, more accessible to study. Unfortunately, everything in poker takes money and that ends ends up being a very significant uh, differentiation between people who can afford it and who can't.
0: That's a big reason why it can be difficult for many people to break into poker. That's right. You have done a really great job with efficient learning, clearly because you've only been playing serious poker tournaments for like a little over a year and you're playing at a very high level. So for other people who are busy and want to get great at tournament poker, what can you pinpoint as um, how they should approach efficient learning? So there's so much information out there. There's so many ways to attempt to get better. What should they focus on?
1: So I, I could talk a little bit about what I do. I, I don't know how transferable it is. I think some things are more so than others. I think part of what helps me is my, my obsessive personality. If I get if I get interested in something, I have a very hard time keeping it at the at the hobby level. It it just becomes obsession. During COVID, my guilty pleasure became watching essentially a high-stake uh, tournament poker final tables and whatnot. And then in September, the World Series of Poker was coming up, and and I told myself. Uh, well, I haven't had a vacation forever. What if I just take 10 days off and I go to Vegas and I play a few tournaments? And that adventure, if you will, have, have, have very quickly turned into, turned into passion. Now, once it did, starting from November of last year, I studied at least eight hours a day every single day. And I still have, you know, a ton of other responsibilities. I'm still a founder and CEO of... Uh, The latest tech company that i started a few years ago and it's also not possible to have that kind of a lifestyle choice for many people i I recognize that you know for the last year my life was you know six hours of sleep eight hours of work eight hours of poker and another two hours for you know the rest of life (laughs) that's an important factor the other one i got incredibly lucky with mentors and i cannot overstate just how important the the mentorship is you know, I got started by uh, by working with Sam Grafton. He was my my first teacher. Uh, how lucky does somebody get to get Sam to to coach you? So that got me started. And then I had a pleasure, privilege, you know, incredible luck to to meet some other players. Uh, lucky Chewy has been my 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 main coach for for the last uh, six months or so. And just just growing under Chewy is is just a tremendous opportunity that not not too many people get so I just also got super lucky
0: well you make your own luck though so you must have (laughs) (laughs) make these amazing players understand that you were committed but okay you're right not everybody has eight hours a day so from your women's poker study group can you pinpoint some things that like you are directing people to do even if they only have you know a couple hours a day to study like what should they not waste their time on? What should they waste their
1: time on? So also when I when I started, like really, really started, even before I got to really great coaches and mentors, I went looking for online learning platforms. And, and I think I first signed up for Jonathan Little's uh, chesscoaching.com. And I think it took me about a month to blaze through their content, but that was super helpful to get some basics right. And then the next I discovered Upswing. Doug Polk's uh, platform and uh, I register and I blaze through the lab that they have. And I took a couple of, couple of courses by Trangela and uh, on MTT and, and by Doug Polk on, on Heads Up. So that was super helpful. Then somebody told me about Run It Once and I subscribed and I started you know, watching as many videos as I can. And then the MTT course by uh, Patrick Leonard, Parts and Parts, was probably the most single uh, piece of content that, that helped me. Definitely finding content on the internet, uh, and just a lot of it. Signing up for poker learning sites is, uh, is, is one way to go. There's so many great tools that are, that are out there today. There's some generation of new web tools and, and cloud tools that are appearing that has a promise of making you know, solvers more approachable. You could certainly, something like Preflop Academy have made good Preflop ranges and strategies and sims and training accessible to just about everybody i learn best if i if i played an interesting hand and then i want to i'm very curious and i want to learn everybody everything about this hand and that tends to open up just facets of the strategy that are tangential to the hand but i I like to study it sort of an integrated way a hand went from pre-flop to post-flop uh, so there's a lot of pre-flop ideas, there's a lot of post-flop ideas, there's just a lot of tangents that you could go to based on the hand. And to me, that that, that makes it all real, much more so than trying to study in isolation, whatever, three bad pots.
0: It's funny that you mentioned that, because circling back to the hand that you played with Eric Seidel, I just love the photo of you and Eric after the hand, because I had to do a double take because it looks like you're in the hand. The hand actually ended but you're both just in deep thought thinking about, you know, everything that just happened. And I I love that because it shows like two such students of the game.
1: Eric is just simply the best. He's he's just the best.
0: It's like the end is the beginning.
1: (laughs) Well, every hand is just a piece in the chain of hands. So, yeah. With
0: how much time and study and work you're putting into the game and the amount of money you've won this year, do you consider yourself a professional
1: such a difficult question. I, I, I definitely have no idea how to handle that question. And I've been asked that several times recently. And, and oftentimes people just now assume that, that I am a professional. Uh, you know, I, I think the definition of professional is somebody who derives income from poker. That's really not the case. And I don't see poker as the uh, uh, sort of profession in the sense of this, this is how I make money. But uh, with the amount of study, with the amount of focus, I could say with the amount of ambitions, I think the, the difference is pretty blur.
0: Perhaps it will be even more blurry in the future, as I know you intend to play a, a lot more high rollers and continue to make this your mark on the poker world. What is kind of your ambition?
1: Well, but, but I don't think necessarily just high rollers. I kind of I get involved. Everything with poker is so fresh and so new. I mean, one year is just not a long time. And so I've just enjoyed everything about it. And, I'm, and, and there's so much more to discover. I'm interested in other things. I'm, I'm studying Heads Up. I just like it as a, as a form of art and form of a game, as well as a stepping stone towards, uh, towards just generally understanding understanding GTO, understanding poker better. I'm fairly intrigued about mixed games, which I don't have time to get into, but at some point in time, pretty sure I am. So yeah, I'm super early in my poker career, quote unquote. So looking forward to enjoy many of its aspects.
0: Who are your favorite and least favorite poker players to play against? And you can interpret that however you
1: <laughs> <laughs> I have not really met people that can think of that I like, don't like to play against. I don't like to play against people who play super slowly and tank. I play very fast. And uh, I think the main the game is meant to play fast, love love playing with the clock. I think the something like chess clock would would just be mandatory in poker for enjoyment of the game. There are people who are just serial tankers uh, for no reason whatsoever, so that that's very unpleasant. I, I don't like playing them. And somebody who would generally be like super obnoxious at the table. Once in a while, you come across somebody like that, and and it spoils the game. Generally. The better the players are, the more joy it is to play against. There are some people who are just enigmas. Sean Winter is probably the, one of the most enigmatic people <laughs> that I've met. Uh, uh, and, and, and so playing with him, you just absolutely never know what you're, you know, what you're up against. So that's, uh, that's always interesting. He's, he's just such a unique character. But I, I, I actually adore all the opportunities to play against really, really, really good players. I had a chance to play quite a bit with Bonama, let's say, right? But whenever they're at the table, there's just such a, I don't know, surgical perfection that comes out of the way. They play poker, and then you play with people who are super creative. I, I got to put Chewie in that category. I had my first experience playing with Adama earlier in one of the poker masters. It's just so cool to have that kind of experience. All the people who play in Poker Go routinely, they're all amazing in its own right. Played a lot with Fedor uh, over the summer. That was that was pretty thrilling. Like, I remember, like, bluffing Fedor specifically is is a, just, just a thrill of, of its own kind.
0: <laughs> I think it's going to be a big couple of years for women in poker. And, like, I know that uh, you're doing a lot to make it big, both as a player and as a role model and mentor. So that's. That's awesome. Thank you so much for not only joining me on the podcast, but for kind of paying it forward. You know, it's like just immediately you become successful in the game and you think so quickly about how you can help other people. And I think that's
1: really cool. That's very rewarding. You know, I've done it in other places and, and and it is very much, I don't even know if it's paying forward. I think it's paying backward. When I look at my own entry into poker I mean, so many people without being prompted for no reason whatsoever, just extended their help and extended their welcome and, uh, and started, uh, you know, encouraging me, asking them questions and providing just amazing information and insights. So, and, and I continue to benefit from people giving me time and, uh, and attention and mentorship. So it's, uh, it's not even paying forward, it's, you know, just being a member of the community that I value a great deal.
0: That's great. What's special about the poker community that you haven't really seen in like chess or tech?
1: Poker community is unlike anything I've ever come across at so many levels. Just so many unique, unique aspects of that. I don't even know where to begin. You know, for one, just amount of laughter. I've, I've never seen industry where, you know, being able to just kind of have a lighter side and not a day goes by where I'm not perusing Twitter and just dying out laughing. Lucky Chewy once about this. He says, well, as poker players, we have to deal with disappointment <laughs> so much that if you don't have a sense of humor, that, that's sort of like, like self-selective. I think there's a lot of truth into it. It's a very goofy community. It's a community made up from very original people that are kind of misfits in every other sense and then they find home in, you know, in this game. I feel very much at home with poker community myself, more so than in any other community or industry that I've ever been a part of. Uh, in some sense, poker has been really, really amazing, like, late gift of life. Both the game and, and the people and the, and the community around this. I don't think I ever really felt very much belong to Silicon Valley or, you know, math and academic environment, or even entrepreneurship or mountaineering, you know, all of these things had a place in my heart. But as far as community around this, I was, I was always a stranger to this. And in some strange and interesting and wonderful ways, I feel a lot less stranger to the poker community than, than any other it feels like I found my tribe.
0: I love that. Well, we're <laughs> so happy to have you. Victoria Livschitz, who brought us a hand, Queen Knight Offsuit. Wow. High roller, coach, tech entrepreneur. She's at Victoria L underscore 64 on Twitter. And if you are interested in that women's study room, that would be a good way to get in touch with her. I know you play a lot, but next time we are in the same tournament, I'd love to meet for a, a drink. Yeah,
1: sounds good. Next poker tournament, we'll find a way to connect.
0: Yay. Kisses to your fam and Louisa. Bye.
1: Thank you will
0: do. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Grid sponsored by PokerStars. Please subscribe, review, and tell your friends about your favorite episode. Till next time as we count down 169 hands.
1: No, I never bust. They say I'm lucky. Oh, no, no
0: need to bluff. With all the cheap tricks up my sleeve. Yeah, I
1: got Tyler.